Welcome to Policy for the People, a show that explores the public policies that can lift up all Oregonians. This show is a collaboration between KMUZ Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. I am your host, Ken Adams. In 2019, on the eve of the pandemic, the nation and Oregon were marking one of the longest uninterrupted periods of economic growth in many decades. Unemployment stood at a previous unheard of rate of 3.7%. But despite the seemingly strong economy and job market, the day-in and day-out reality of most workers in Oregon was quite challenging. In the new report on September 1st, just ahead of the Labor Day weekend, the Oregon Center for Public Policy notes that a majority of jobs in Oregon on the eve of the pandemic were poor quality jobs. Here to discuss this topic of poor quality jobs is OCPP Senior Policy Analyst Janet Bauer. Janet, nice to talk with you again. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And Janet, let's start by defining terms. What is a poor quality job? Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, What we mean by a poor quality job is one that doesn't allow you to support yourself and your family. Um, Fundamentally, it doesn't pay enough. That is one of the central issues. But poor quality jobs also can have additional challenges like insufficient benefits, um, including health insurance. There may not be enough hours offered. There may be unpredictable hours that make life hard for workers. So although a poor quality job often centers around the wages that, is, that are paid, it also includes other, other things and other working conditions that can make life hard for the workers who are in those jobs. So how many jobs in Oregon fall in this category of poor quality jobs? Well, um, to answer that question, the first thing we need to know is whether, first of all, the job pays enough, as I suggested. Um, What kind of wage does the worker need to make ends meet? Because if a job doesn't pay enough so that a person can cover the basic necessities like food and shelter, um, then it's not a quality job. In 2019, to make ends meet, a worker in a two-person family would have needed to earn between $20 and $21 an hour while working full-time year-round, and that assumes that any child in that family is of school age and therefore doesn't need full-day care because full-day child care is very expensive. But that 20 to $21 per hour figure is a reasonable benchmark for the minimum you would need to barely get by for a two-person family. And, of course, that number goes up the bigger the family is. Um, So in the report that we released, um, we looked at how many jobs in Oregon pay less than $20 an hour. Um, And I should mention that our report is on our website at Uh, OCPP.org, what we found is that 55% of all jobs in Oregon in 2019 paid less than $20 an hour. I can break that down a little further. One-third of those jobs, of all jobs, paid less than $15 an hour. And another 22% of jobs paid between $15 and $20 an hour. So really the bottom line is that 
in 2019, more than half of all jobs weren't paying enough to support a family. More than half of all jobs failed that initial marker of a quality job. So it's interesting to hear that $15 per hour is still a wage that's too low for families to make ends meet. Uh, For many minimum wage advocates, uh, the goal has been $15 an hour. What do you make of that? Is is that the wrong goal? Well, um, good question. Uh, Yes and no. Uh, At the national level, getting to $15 an hour quickly would be a tremendous achievement that would do a whole lot of good. And, you know, I say that keeping in mind that the federal minimum wage is just $7.25 an hour. So more than a third of all states have no minimum wage, and they work, their workers rely on the federal minimum wage as the wage floor. Um, Oregon has its own minimum wage that's significantly higher than the federal minimum wage. But even here, our minimum wage is below $15 an hour. Um, our minimum wage varies depending on whether you live in an urban or a rural county. Uh, the highest wage is in the Portland area, and we are now at $14 an hour. So even a $15 per hour increase here would be in the Portland area would be an improvement. Um, and it certainly would be a great improvement in places like Malheur County and Lake County and all the other rural counties where the minimum wage is 12 bucks an hour. You know, I, I would say also it's important to keep in mind that the minimum wage increases tend to have spillover effects, so jobs just a bit above the minimum wage also tend to get a bump up when the minimum wage goes up. Um, but, you know, I would say that here in Oregon, we should be thinking of aiming higher than $15 an hour since we know that that wage is insufficient. You know, thinking back about the Fight for 15 movement, it started nearly 10 years ago. Um, so the goal of $15 an hour was a little bit closer to what families needed. And, you know, since then, inflation has meant that workers need a bit more just to keep up with the basics. And that's especially true when it, when it comes to uh, housing, uh, because the, it's really increased. That's driving a lot of what makes it very difficult for people on minimum wage to even rent a place at this point. In what lines of work, what industries are we more likely to see lower-paying jobs? You know, there are two industries in particular that account for the bulk of low-wage jobs. Um, These are the leisure and hospitality industry, um, which includes restaurants, hotels, bars and the like, um, and the retail industry. Uh, These industries are huge parts of our economy. We all interact and depend on the services in those industries in our day-to-day lives. You know, there are other industries that are essential to our well-being, but also are paying low wages. And one of those is the agriculture industry. Agriculture workers plant and harvest the food we eat, but many of them struggle to support their families uh, because the wages in that uh, 
industry are, are really low. Another example that I'll give is um, care workers, and we're talking about the people who take care of our children and older folks and people with disabilities. They also have some of the lowest wages in the state, despite the fact that their work is really essential to families to function. We're taking this short break to invite you to subscribe to our podcast for free. Find Policy for the People on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Now, back to the show. So in recent months, there have been a number of news stories about restaurant owners raising wages to attract workers, with some of these increases being quite large. Are we, in fact, seeing big wage increases in some low-wage sectors? Well, we are. Um, Over the past year, we have seen some sharp increases in wages in low- and middle-wage sectors, especially in the leisure and hospitality industry. Uh, But I would also note that there have been increases in higher-wage industries as well, including construction. But back to leisure and hospitality, um, that industry was hit very hard during the pandemic. And, you know, restaurants and motels had to scale back, some even closed. Um, So... Many workers were were laid off, and now um, that the economy is improving, these businesses are, of course, finding that they're needing to pay more to entice workers to come back. And there's a couple things um, I'd like to say about that. Leisure and hospitality has the lowest wages of all the major industries in Oregon, and so wage increases in industries where our wages are low, it's a great thing. And sometimes the news coverage treats these wage increases as alarming <laughs> when, in fact, it's a really positive development that workers have more money in their pocket to help make the ends meet. It sort of begs the question, what virtue is there in a business model that relies on paying people really low wages? The other thing um, to say is that, unfortunately, the wage increases are not as big as they might appear. The news headlines have focused on 12-month changes, kind of year over year, Um, but we should be actually looking at a little bit longer period from the start of the pandemic and when the recession started, you know. Um, So for leisure and hospitality, wages had actually fallen a bit since the start of the pandemic. So any wage increase, you know, that we're seeing now, uh, it first needs to make up for those losses. And the other thing is that we need to factor in um, inflation and the cost of living having having increased. So, you know, I guess I can give you an example of this, of the situation. You know, when you factor in the rising cost of living and the wage, in, the wage increases are not as significant a factor as they might appear, um, specifically restaurant workers, their wages have gone up by a dollar. 60 on average since the start of the pandemic. But if you account for inflation, that $1.60 turns out to be just a 3.6% wage increase. Um, 
you know, the reality is, is that we really need a much larger wage increase than what we're seeing now in order for many of the jobs in these low-wage sectors to provide an adequate wage. Um, we're just still a long way from that. I want to remind our listeners that we're listening to Janet Bauer, the Oregon Center for Public Policy's senior policy analyst. Um, do we know something about the demographics of workers who work in lower-paying jobs? Yeah, lower-paying, poor-quality jobs can be found all over the state, but jobs in rural Oregon are more likely to pay too little for people to make um, ends meet. People might be thinking, well, yeah, jobs in rural areas pay less, but the cost of living is also lower than in the urban areas. And, you know, I would say that's true, but the thing is is that the jobs in rural areas tend to pay much less than the jobs in the city. So those rural workers are actually less able to pay for what they need um, to get by, even at the lower costs in the rural areas. You know, we also know that black and brown Oregonians are more likely to work in low-paying jobs uh, compared to white Oregonians, um, specifically the average wages for Latino, black, and indigenous workers are significantly lower. You know, I want to note that this inequitable situation is the result of historical and current racist structures that mean that people of color are relegated to lower-paying jobs. And and in addition, some of it is due to just out-and-out discrimination on the job. So, for example, there's been studies showing that job applicants with black-sounding names we're less likely to be called back for a job interview than people with a white-sounding name, um, even when the applicants had the same qualifications. There's also a gender issue, as has been well-documented, in our great economy right before the pandemic, the supposed great economy. Um, women were being paid just $0.82 cents for every dollar men were paid. So that's um, a picture of who who we're talking about when we're talking about um poor-quality jobs and who is more likely to be working in them. So let's go back to something you mentioned earlier. You said that poor-quality jobs also come with additional challenges. What are some of those challenges? Oh, yeah. Um, People who work in low-paying jobs do have challenges that go beyond just their low pay, and they include lack of benefits um, like health insurance and not enough hours. Maybe it's only a part-time job. Um, I can talk just a moment about part-time work because it's really something that is not discussed enough, and it's really a huge issue when it comes to the quality of jobs. Um, According to national figures, about one in eight people who worked part-time just prior to the pandemic recession would have worked full-time, but for the fact that their employer doesn't offer a full-time schedule. Um, You know, when you think about that and the impact on the worker, your job already pays a low hourly wage. And then over the course of the year, you bring in even less because you can't work full-time, even if you would prefer it. Part-time workers also face other challenges. For example, they're more likely to have unpredictable work schedules. Um, 
this is an increasing problem. Unpredictable work schedules can wreak havoc on worker finances and and their family life. You you know, if you have an unpredictable work schedule, you don't know when you're going to be called in or can't plan in advance. You can't plan for your child care needs very, very efficiently and effectively um, or other activities um, or take care of other responsibilities. And many people with these sort of on-call, unpredictable schedules can't even get a second job to bring in more income um, because they need to be available uh, if their first job. So unpredictable work schedules affect a lot of low-wage jobs, including full-time workers, but part-time workers are actually twice as likely to have these variable work schedules. I should also mention that a few years back, the Oregon legislature did take action to address the problem of unpredictable uh, work scheduling, and um, the legislation appears to have helped improve working conditions to some extent, Um, but it also appears that employers have found work, uh, like workarounds and loopholes to get around some of the structures that would have helped protect workers um, and help compensate them uh, in their paycheck for having an unpredictable work schedule. So there's still work to be done there. So let's switch gears now and talk about possible policy solutions. We've talked earlier about raising the minimum wage, but what else can Oregon do to address the problem of poor quality jobs? Yeah, there's a lot that Oregon can do. Um, Our report outlines about a dozen policy uh, changes that Oregon can implement to improve the quality of our jobs. You know, we don't claim that these are all the possible ways to make things better. Other good ideas are out there. But our our recommendations are really in about three buckets. The first of them is policies that improve workers' ability to negotiate for better pay and working conditions. Um, one of the reasons why there are so many poor quality jobs is because workers lack bargaining power, and we see it very clearly in the data. When workers are not represented by unions, they're more prone to having low pay, no benefits, or skimpy benefits, unpredictable work schedules, um, and the presence of unions in an industry raises wages and job standards, and it does that not just for unionized workers, but for everyone in the industry. Of course, over many decades now, there's been a relentless assault on unions and the ability of workers to form unions. Um, The federal government is the main line of defense and basically has not defended workers in this regard. So while changing the federal law to make it easier for workers to form unions is essential, there are also things that we can do here in Oregon to improve the quality of jobs. So one example of this is for the state to ensure that agricultural workers uh, and some other classifications of workers have the right to bargain collectively. Um, Agricultural workers are not protected by the National Labor Relations Act, 
uh, but Oregon could step in and make sure that they have those protections. Um, And the same is true for independent contractors. Oregon could also put more resources into enforcing the state's wage, workplace, and safety laws. Um, Many employers are wrongly classifying workers as independent contractors when they are really employees, but they purposely misclassify them to avoid paying benefits, Uh, and one of those includes unemployment insurance. The state should really crack down on that practice. Uh, The state should also clamp down on the problem of wage theft, which is when employers fail to pay their workers the wages they've earned. Um, You and I have talked about the problem of wage theft at some length in the past, and I invite listeners to go back and listen to that show to get all of those details. But I think moving on, the second bucket of policy solutions is to boost the income of workers. Raising the minimum wage, of course, falls into this bucket, and so does raising the state's earned income tax credit, which is a tax credit for low-wage workers. The third bucket of policy solutions is reducing or offsetting the cost of basic needs, such as housing, health care, and child care. You know, at the end of the day, the problem of quality jobs is that they don't allow families to make ends meet. Uh, So the state can address this fundamental issue of economic insecurity for workers by helping them afford basic needs. And the state can do that by investing resources into things like housing and health care and child care. Is there any final point you'd like to make that we didn't cover? It's important to stress that the need for a fundamental rethinking of the economy and the job market. Um, You know, looking at the recent past, if the longest economic boon on record still leaves you with an economy that is permeated with poor quality jobs, you know, jobs that don't allow families to make ends meet, that is a sign of structural problems. And that is the reason why we need lawmakers recognize the need for bold approaches to solving the problem that Argonians aren't thriving, despite the fact that they're serving our state in so many important ways um, through their labor. Well, Janet, I I think we've covered this topic pretty well. Uh, I want to thank you. Uh, And again, this is Janet Bauer. Senior Policy Analyst for the Oregon Center for Public Policy. So thank you for sharing your uh, information with us. And again, maybe you could tell people where they can get the report. Our report on job quality is at ocpp.org. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Policy for the People. Please remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite app.